Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alia Medniuk, a specialist consultant in anesthesia and pain medicine, who's also the acute pain service lead at the Southmead Hospital in Bristol. She also holds a position as honorary senior lecturer at the University of Bristol. Dr. Medniuk joined the North Bristol National Health Service Trust in 2014 as a clinical research fellow in anesthesia and intensive care, and later as a consultant anesthetist. And given that she graduated in medicine from, would you believe, Bristol in the year 2000, she clearly has an affinity for what is an absolutely gorgeous city with fabulous medical services. And anyone who's not been, please check it out. I love Bristol. Aside from her clinical work, Dr. Medniuk sits as a co-investigator on the RELIEF trial, which is a feasibility study into the use of early topical lidocaine patches for elderly patients with rib fractures. Furthermore, she's co-authored and contributed to a variety of papers examining the specific support needs of patients who've spent time in intensive care. I previously had the pleasure of working with Dr. Medniuk in 2021 on a webinar here, and I recall that she loved to bake birthday and wedding cakes. Alia, my birthday is in December, and I shall be waiting. I didn't get one last December. So, Alia, thanks so much for joining us today. We're very much looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Jonathan. That's a lovely introduction. I didn't realize I realized I'd actually been so busy. Well, the old the the aphorism is you've got to enjoy yourself because we're going to spend a long time dead. So I'm told. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so share with everyone, and and by the way, uh, to the folks listening in, Alia told me before we got going that her dog has been given a very large bone to gnaw on. But I'm kind of hoping that the, 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 the dog joins in the conversation. It's always so much more fun. If Thea will join us, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alia, what, what inspired you to pursue a career in medicine and, and what led you to specialise in anaesthesia and acute pain? Well, I think as a young, uh, young girl growing up in a Thatcher generation, I was slightly concerned about unemployment. And it was a very, <laughs> pardon the expression, it's a very clinical decision I made at the age of eight which was simply, I must have a job where I'm always needed because I don't want to lose my job and I don't want to be unemployed. And I kind of looked at different types of jobs that I might be suited to. And my teacher said, oh, you know, Alia, you could be a vet, you could be a dentist, or you could be a doctor and you'll always have a job because people are always getting sick or dogs are always sick. And I kind of sat there and went, hmm, I think I'd like to be a doctor because I don't want to have to put dogs down. So it was a, it, that's what kind of got me thinking about how I was going to pursue a career in medicine. And the more, and the more I looked into it and the more work I did, because in those days I did lots of different types of work experience and worked out that I really enjoyed working with people. As an eight-year-old? Well, no, I didn't start working at the age of eight, but I did start investigating whether or not I wanted to actually work around people. And I think I got my first job at the age of 12 where I worked in a shop and I thought this isn't for me, but I quite like the interactions I'm having. And then gradually, uh, as I became much more academic and recognised that I actually had a talent for passing exams, I applied to medical school after completing things like Duke of Edinburgh and various bits of work experience. And I thought, yeah, actually, this this really suits me. I really like this. And I really I like the creativity that goes with medicine because I'm a creative person. But I also like using my brain in a scientific methodological way and that that kind of got me got me to medical school 
And then as I as I worked through my career after finishing med school, and as you mentioned, I graduated from the University of Bristol, which is just a fantastic university. I decided I wanted to pursue a career in surgery. And that was basically because as a pre-registration house officer, as we were known back then, I found myself just not really enjoying the daily grind of ward work. It just wasn't really for me. And actually really enjoyed the theatre environment because I found a great love of anatomy. And after I left medical school, I then went back to the university to become an anatomy demonstrator and found that teaching and learning more about anatomy was something that I was really drawn to. And the, the sort of beauty of anatomy is what inspired me just to think, OK, I think I'd like to be a surgeon. So I applied for a surgical rotation and realised halfway through my surgical rotation, I did not enjoy cutting. That's a bit of a drawback to be a surgeon. Yeah, it was was definitely, this this definitely isn't really the right role for me, but I really enjoyed being in a theatre environment. And one day, I remember it was just after I completed my membership at the Royal College of Surgeons. So I went through it, did all the exams, and I still didn't want to be a surgeon despite all of that. And I was doing a burr hole, I think, in a neurosurgical procedure. And the anaesthetist looked up and he's become a long-term friend of mine since. And he said, you look terribly bored. And I said, I am. And he said, would you like to come and join me and do a bit of anaesthesia? So I would basically put the patients off to sleep at the head end and then move down the table and go to the middle of the table and help do the operation. And I realised actually anaesthesia was really my calling. And so I applied for an anaesthetics rotation and that's where I've ended up. It was it was quite a journey going through my anaesthetics training. It had a few challenges along the way. And part of those challenges led me into exploring this idea of psychological trauma, which I saw a lot of through my initial pain training, which was sort of mandatory part of our training at the time. And then I decided to take that one step further and I embarked on advanced pain training. And realize that I'm whilst I'm not I'm not ward based and I'm also not clinic based and actually I really enjoyed the acute pain side of side of the work and my training so I decided when it came to applying for a job as a consultant that I didn't want to apply for a a a chronic pain anesthetics job and I just applied for an anesthesia job and the chap that had poached me from neurosurgery was actually our clinical lead at the time for the department and said, Alia, the acute pain service is in turmoil and the the lead has retired and there is no leadership. And I know you're only in your first year as a consultant, but could you take over the acute pain service? And so he gave me a a challenge, which was to put together a service and rise it from the ashes, put together a team and streamline all our policies and guidelines and make the acute pain service what I wanted to be was a flagship service for the trust. And it's still a work in progress. But I love the work. I have a great variety in my job now. I have theatre time. I have pain time. And more recently, I've moved into the world of substance misuse and drug dependency, which has been aligned to my interest in pain medicine. Because again, going back to this idea that it's not just physical somatic pain, but also looking at the spiritual pain which probably sounds a bit soft when I say it out loud like that, but it's also ex- really examining the psychological impact of well, life experiences and how that might lead into alcohol or drug dependency 
because ultimately it's all about self-anesthesia, which is what's happening. So it sounds like I've got quite a portfolio career, but actually they all have a common thread. And I feel like I found a good balance with my work. And who knew that as an eight-year-old, this is where I would end up. <laughs> I have to say, you know, I commend you for being, I recently had dinner with a mate of mine and he wanted me to talk to his young daughter because she wants to, is considering medicine. And he said, I feel a bit silly because she's 15. And I said, no, it's perfectly fine to have that conversation. And, you know, kudos to her for being, you know, for driving the dialogue. But I think it's adorable as an eight-year-old, you know, and I don't want to put dogs down. It, there's a lovely clarity of thought for kids. And, you know, as for a pain service, you know, the, the I worked with an anaesthetist in, in D.C. for many years, Mike Peck. And in fact, I've had him as a guest on the podcast. And Mike first taught me the expression, the blood-brain barrier, which was the green drape that separated him from me. (laughs) He was the brain, I was the blood. But he always talked to me about, you know, pain management and how it, what a rewarding thing it was to do. And I certainly saw it with my late mum, where a pain specialist resolved her shoulder pain from bone-on-bone arthritis instead of just giving her narcotics. And yeah, kudos to you. So you've had an impressive career uh, as a doctor. And I'm sure it's going to be a difficult one for you to answer, but can you think of any standout moments? Standout moments? Well, I would say, actually, this might not be something that I've got from within work, but actually what happened to me personally as I was going through my training, I actually became quite unwell throughout my uh, during my early training as an anaesthetist. And becoming unwell and having time, taking time off sort of, cemented for me that actually being a doctor was really truly my calling because I was completely lost without it so that reaffirmed my commitment to my career and then going into my registrar years I actually developed like like your poor mum bone on bone arthritis in both of my hips uh, just simply because I was just built wrong and I did far too much sport for my own good and uh, ended up having significant orthopedic procedures to correct them and I was off work probably in total for about three years, oh but going through the process, it was uh, it was it was a pretty tough time. But I got really strong arms for being on crutches for that long, <laughs> and I think part of that going through the journey as a patient was significant. And the process of going through being anaesthetized, having various interventions. So, for example, I had spinals and epidurals as part of my my management. Uh, I also experienced some interesting pain management, and also experienced some great pain management. And I would say as a standout moment, being unwell, going through the process of being a patient really transformed my practice as a doctor, whether or not it drove more empathy or compassion in me, whether or not it just, I I simply don't, I don't know what it was, but there was a, a moment where I felt true empathy for the patient. And I try to remember that experience pretty much with every single patient I interact with, because it is, well, quite quite frankly, quite terrifying being a patient. And I recognise as an anaesthetist that loss of control that a patient can experience. And I think that's quite a lot of the nervousness around undergoing an anaesthetic. So I am mindful of that. I try to talk to the patients about that experience. And sometimes if it's appropriate, I might share a little bit about that experience. But I think that has been a standout moment in my career. And I think that's a highlight was probably the day that I was appointed as a consultant in a trust I absolutely love working in. So that was wonderful. That was the conclusion 
of years of trouble, strife, being unwell, and then actually being able to complete my training successfully and then being pointed to a consultant was just like, okay, that part's done. Now here comes the rest of it. Thank you very much for sharing that. I mean, I would say that, you know, I, I didn't have the same experience, but again, being unwell as a doctor and in fact, the thing that probably inspired me to be a doctor was when I had acute appendicitis as I was a little kid, mm-hmm. I was 10, and our local GP, Dr. Antonio, I'll never forget him, he died recently. But I just remember how gentle he was and how he talked to me, not to my parents, about me. He talked to me and told me what was yeah. going to happen. And then going to see the surgeon, whose name was Mr. Levy. And again, this is a long, long time ago. And it made an impression on me. And that really, that really inspired me. So thank you for sharing that. And I want to talk a little bit about your work in pain as the acute pain service lead at Southmead. What's meant by acute pain and what kinds of pain do you most frequently see in your pain practice? Acute pain, classically, we would describe as pain that is temporarily related to the injury. And we would expect it to resolve during an appropriate healing period. I mean, arbitrarily, that's kind of set at about three months. And fundamentally, that's important to me because I I like solving things. And that's probably why I've drifted into acute pain. And acute pain should and often responds to treatment with conventional analgesia. So we're not looking at the more exciting drugs that we might perhaps drift into if we're in chronic pain clinic and we had more time to think about different types of pain, for example, intractable chronic neuropathic pain. But if we treat the cause of the pain in the acute pain world, we expect it to get better. And so within my practice, whilst the idea of only managing acute pain for inpatients, that's an unrealistic expectation. So within our case mix, for example, we have a combination of acute pain immediately after surgery or trauma because we are a major trauma centre. And so generally, without being too flippant about it, that's quite easy to treat because we expect it to respond to our conventional analgesics, including high-dose opioids, which is appropriate in the acute pain setting. But we also get admissions for flare-ups of chronic pain. So we would call that an acute on chronic pain. And they can be much more challenging as a patient group to manage because they already have all the medications prescribed for them. And that challenges us to think a little bit more outside the box as to how can we get this patient up out of an acute bed and back out into the community where they could be followed up appropriately by the chronic pain team. Because chronic pain is rarely cured, but can be managed. And that's a really tough message to deliver to a patient who has come in with an acute flare-up of back pain, for example, and they've tried everything, everything, and they're on significantly high-dose opioids, which to which, of course, their pain doesn't respond to. We're also, as part of a major trauma centre, we're a burn centre, so we also manage complex mixed pain with patients who suffer with burns, so that's a mixture of somatic pain, that might be neuropathic pain. With burns, there's the added concerns about procedural pain with dressing changes, and we've got to be able to respond to those those needs as and when they arise for the patients. So, yeah, the service will pretty much cover everything that an inpatient might might be faced with and then thrown into the mix, especially for me, as a complex pain with patients with dependency syndromes. It's usually illicit 
illicit drugs, whatever they've managed to find on the great streets of Bristol. So, yeah, it's a real smorgasbord, I think, of, uh, of case mix. You know, just the other day, a friend called me. He was overseas, slipped, fell, hit his head, hurt his chest, came back, got an x-ray, sent it to me, and he clearly had several rib fractures. And the doctor he had seen, I'm not going to say where it is, I'm not going to mention any names, <laughs> gave him um, some, you know, oral uh, narcotics. And this gentleman relies on his work, requires him to use his, his chest muscles. And I said, did they offer you a block? And he, you know, he made some disparaging comment, <laughs> no. And I suggested he contact his GP, who basically responded with, what's that? Do you think that the average docs today are aware of the kind of magic that people like you can do? And if not, why aren't you doing more to educate them? <laughs> well, I, I just wonder if it's simply because we, we are a bit silo-based, aren't we, in terms of how our healthcare system is set up. So if that patient had been admitted to our hospital, would they have, we, we obviously triage patients and whether or not we can, so the relief trial, which I think you mentioned at the beginning is mm -hmm. something that we're looking at with early, an early intervention of applying a lidocaine plaster. So we're finding that the topical plasters are really useful and particularly if they go on early, because if a, if a patient can have a block, for example, for a rib fracture and that's an appropriate course of action, there is often, that's provided by, for example, the anaesthetic service. And as you know, anaesthetists basically live in theatre. So if we're not available, then at least we've got something to provide patients with decent analgesia. I mean, I think the short point is we don't have those lines of communication. And I think if we did have that magic wand, then we would have much more transparency. This is what we can do in this hospital local to you. This is the type of patient we want to see. So I think, you know, because we are so divided between what is primary care, what is secondary care, I think it, it makes it really, really difficult to advertise what we can actually do. I don't know if that actually answers your question, but... I think people like you, especially you, because you're such a good communicator, need to shout it from the rooftops. And that nowadays, there's really no need for people to be in chronic pain. I mean, or, or acute pain, there are things that can be done. And to that end, during your time in the specialty, what's most changed significantly about pain management since the time you've been doing it? Oh, well, for sure. I think the opioid crisis, as we all talk about, has definitely opened eyes as to how we, ma we manage pain in the community. And I think the, the move for deprescription and addressing the fact that it is not evidence-based to treat chronic pain with opioids, so non-cancer pain, and treating it with high-dose opioids and narcotics is not an appropriate course of action because the pain is generally not responsive and what we end up doing is fostering dependency. And then latterly in the last couple of years, uh, well, I've lost, I've lost time with COVID, I think we all have maybe in the last three years, um, the move to schedule gabapentinoids, so gabapentin, pregabalin, and simply not prescribe medication of dependency for pain states. And I find that that has been a sea change in how we are meant to approach the uh, pain management in the community from an acute pain perspective again i i mean personally i i, I don't prescribe pregabalin and gabapentin 
specifically because the evidence base is so poor so I try to practice more evidence-based pain management and simply and that is driven by nice guidance and also local uh, our local formulary and the group that I'm part of which is a drug dependency group so we're trying to work again with the community in order to prevent patients being prescribed these drugs before they even come into hospital and so sort of fostering that cycle so I think uh, with the latest NICE guidance for chronic pain, which basically encourages patients to be self-managing with support from mental health and, psycholo- and psychology teams and removing, essentially, I mean, it's a bit, it was controversial at the time, but removing pharmacological management of chronic pain. And I think that has been a big change in how pain management is conducted really in the community I think we're we're yet to really see to really recognize the fallout of that because a lot of patients are deeply disappointed at having their analgesia taken away as they see it but it's it's more about empowering the patient to take on the message that hurt does not mean harm for example yeah yeah but when you come into hospital you're not going to be denied morphine if you're having major abdominal surgery for example that that isn't that isn't what pain that's not what pain management is about it's looking at more a balanced approach to prescription but it's also looking at what does that patient need in this moment according to their pathology but yeah i think the move to de-prescribe opioids narcotics gabapentin pregabalin has been a huge change Particularly since, I mean, I, when I started, when I, from the time I graduated in 2000, which sounds a very long time ago. Oh, oh, my dear. Yeah, that's about a blink of an eye for some of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let's, um, let's get very tough. But I'm, I'm moving swiftly on. I don't want to go down that particular rabbit hole. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, in fact, I'll tell you one thing. When, when I get together, I went to um, a reunion of, few years back and and I walked into the room and I didn't recognize anyone I thought I must be in the wrong room because it was full of all these middle-aged people <laughs> no idea who oh, they dear. were of course it was oh, me yeah. the day that you look in the mirror you, but this wouldn't be germane to you but the day a bloke looks in the mirror and goes dad <laughs> so, <laughs> that's where I am so let's talk a little bit about COVID it's you mentioned uh, the pandemic let's let's think about COVID as it affects pain number one how has it affected your ability to you know you can do certain things through telemedicine but you know you can't do local blocks or you know look at truly evaluate a patient or maybe you can that's question number one and the second COVID uh, question relates to there's uh, some pain syndromes associated with, with COVID, like chronic myalgia. What are your thoughts about all of that? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I say the focus of my work is inpatients. So during the pandemic, I mean, we had to seriously restrict the service simply because the nurses, for example, on my team were all redeployed to intensive care. Uh, we managed to keep two of them. But we, at the time, I don't know if you, if you recall, that no elective work was actually being, no elective surgical work was being done. So at the same time, we had a bit of, we had a reduced workload, but we still had things like trauma and emergency surgery that needed to go on. And so we were left to provide that service on a very skeleton team. So I sort of crossed the bridge between being an anaesthetist, because that was obviously fundamentally that is my role, and working within 
the government guidance at the time and trying to assess patients in full PPE was quite challenging. And also, I think quite a lot of the, a lot of the work that we do we do now uh, at a distance with a mask on, I, I think that really has changed how we interact with our patients. Some of our patients, they they do. You you need to you need to foster trust in a relationship with a patient. And sometimes when you don't really enjoy that eye contact, that ease that you can that your presence can bring I think that definitely changes the dynamic and I find that a lot of people so for example in our practice I've really noticed that we're getting a lot more trauma and I think that might just generally be borne out by the increase in mental health problems and behavioral changes in the community and that really like changes the nature of injuries and the pain that we are having to manage it's you know and because uh, intensive care and critical care facilities and critical care in general is so much more advanced. We wouldn't expect people to survive this level of injury. So I think that's one thing which isn't maybe a direct COVID, but perhaps it's an indirect effect of the pandemic. I, I've also noticed a lot around the small vessel embolization, which has been related to the coagulopathy that's been associated with COVID in the sort of beginning phases of the pandemic and now we're seeing a lot of patients in the hospital we have this really complex neuropathic pain after this kind of small vessel embolization which essentially is leading to auto amputation but before that happens it's exquisitely painful and it's really challenging to find ways to manage that not only from a pain perspective and a neuropathic pain perspective because opioids simply don't touch the sides and they're not appropriate. But also the mental health consequences of that are really, really challenging. So for me, from, from our team's perspective, they're, they're the main things that I've noticed. I think from the outpatient perspective, I don't think we've really fully appreciated the impact of long COVID and how that's actually going to affect patients. But I do know that pharmacology is not going to be how this how this will be managed so i think those are my my general reflections on what's happening at the moment yeah well i think it's a question of watch this space isn't it a lot more to learn yeah yeah Uh, yeah, we have a lot to learn still yeah so changing uh tack a bit in a recent interview some work you did with dr ben watson was spotlighted talking about recovering addict receiving dialysis in tell our listeners about that and how in your opinion pooling knowledge, working with other specialists from different fields can lead to better outcomes. Collaboration, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Funny, I actually had a a high-level meeting with Dr. Watson today over coffee, which was lovely. He is actually my mentor in the world of substance misuse. And I think it's really important to pool knowledge. But also, I mean, as my base specialty is anaesthesia, uh, we quite often, I mean, I particularly often require a second brain. And that's usually just a sense check our responses in a clinical scenario. And that doesn't really change in my approach to pain. And I think it's really important that when we do work together, different specialties, different backgrounds, and we can broaden our own knowledge base as an individual, but also, you know, someone else can bring something fresh and a different experience. And we can provide maybe something, a unique bespoke package to the patient in front of us. So I think that's really important. And again, I I think it's really important to sense check what I'm doing. And that's why I really enjoy working with people from different backgrounds, uh, allied healthcare professionals, 
different doctors from different specialties it's you know personally I think that's really where where it's at in terms of breaking down the silos that I sort of mentioned earlier and this particular patient that you mentioned this was a true multidisciplinary collaboration led by the patient because at that moment in his life he was entirely motivated to switch from methadone to buprenorphine opioid substitution probably getting a little bit too much into the into the clinical details but there are lots of really good reasons why he wanted to do that and one of which is because he couldn't manage his own level of addiction and using drugs on top of methadone so he was getting higher and higher requirements for opioids and his behaviour was chaotic and erratic, and usually he was entirely non-compliant and wouldn't turn up for dialysis. So he recognised he was in crisis, yeah. and the team he, he was working with also recognised he was in crisis. And I was contacted by his drugs team to see if we could facilitate an immediate inpatient, totally unique experience, inpatient conversion from methadone to buprenorphine. And I sat with him for six hours as I did the conversion. And funny enough, we found a lot to talk about in six hours. And my eyes were open to his world, which was actually a huge privilege. And it really gave me an insight into his life, his experiences, and the experiences of homeless people who suffer with drug dependency and addiction. So yeah, I think it was it was a huge, hugely rewarding experience for all parties. And the patient had a, a good outcome in in the early days, but sadly, um, sadly died um, a few months later, not from drug overdose, but from other causes. But yeah, a great experience, I have to say. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it's another indication, is it, that you don't judge a book by the cover because um, there can be a lot absolutely below the surface yeah and your comment about collaborating with other specialists the the thing that always delights me is working in in innovative fields i've had my most mm. fun and most stimulating interactions with people who are engineers and computer scientists and you know yeah. they see the world through a completely different optic and they can see the flaws in what I do much better than I ever could. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. I do want to go back to the the webinar that we did um, last year, which was uh, entitled Diclofenac in a new and innovative form, low dosages and small volume. Can you, for the people who didn't have the benefit of hearing you wax lyrical on the topic, can you give them like a 30,000 foot view of that? Uh, yeah, so we have been using a new formulation of Diclofenac in theatre, which was fundamentally, it's been shown to be more effective more quickly, and we can use it effectively in day case procedures when it's appropriate to use a non-steroidal. And also I've used it and integrated it into enhanced recovery, day case, knee and hip surgery when it's again it's appropriate to use a non-steroidal so we also found that from a theatre perspective we were actually giving it correctly because with previous formulations there has been an interesting method of delivering it off license and so we were able to find that actually you could just draw up a draw up a bolus and quickly give it in the back of the cannula just before you go out to recovery so the peak plasma effect would be hitting the patient just as they were emerging in recovery and so you could provide the recovery nurse with a very comfortable patient without too many opiates on board. So we still continue to, to use it in our practice. 
and uh, yeah, finding it very, very useful, particularly because it's such a it's a, it's a quick win <laughs> as, you, as you leave theatre, and that's the most important thing. And it's best to be able to deliver a patient that's comfortable. So right. yeah, right. Well, and going from that, which was I think guess looking backwards to last year, what does the future of pain management look like? Any really exciting innovations on the horizon um, uh, that folks should, who are listening should be aware of? I think there's always there are always new new drugs, new ideas, new new ideas for regional anaesthesia, particularly from an inpatient perspective. So I'm actually teaching on a course next week where we uh, also well we teach regional anaesthesia, but they're always I'm always staggered by the new blocks that are coming out. It's like you're blocking that nerve, something that's been informed by COVID, for example, where we try to reduce the intubating as much as possible and do patients under regional block to avoid aerosol generating procedures. So I think that that area, particularly with acute and inpatient pain management, is definitely something that is developing, it's gathering pace and momentum. In terms of drugs, I'm approached, unsurprisingly, I'm approached all the time by uh, pharmaceutical companies who want to chat to me about different types of medication. There are uh, new formulations of opioids which are being generated still sort of at the development stage I, I kind of always watch those with a little bit of interest and I, I always ask them well what's the diversion potential which kind of stumps them a little bit I'm also interested in there is one particular opioid which has been used a drug called pentadol which has low diversion potential because it doesn't without I, I can't really describe this without sounding like I have a dependency syndrome myself but it just <laughs> doesn't give you a bump and doesn't give you a doesn't give you a hit and doesn't feel particularly good when you take it and that's not to say that it's not a fantastic analgesic but it, it it's uh, the kids in america aren't diverting it and they're not stealing it from their parents medicine cabinets so, so that's the data i think they presented that much more scientifically than i've just said it but fundamentally i think that's a really interesting drug and that's definitely one to watch sort of from a pre-hospital care perspective we have taken on a drug called Penthrox, which is an inhaled methoxyfluorine, which is a great alternative to using Antinox, and it can be de- delivered by paramedics. So that's been something that's been happening in our region and has been used more widespread in Australasia for many, many years. Hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a rebranded old volatile anaesthetic called methoxyfluorine, and in large doses and prolonged anaesthesia, which calls renal failure, which is obviously very bad. But in small doses, a couple of times a week delivered, uh, it can be really useful for procedural pain. So sort of going back to that more circular, going back to procedural pain in burns, we uh, have had some successes in using this drug called Pentherox, which is really useful. So I think the move towards non-APOID based pharmacology and pharmacological management is probably where pain management should be going. And there's, there are a couple of notable drugs that I've, I've had some success with in terms of inpatient pain management. Well, you did mention blocks. I, I had the privilege of having a guest on the show who talked about stellate ganglion blocks to treat oh, yeah. PTSI, post-traumatic yeah. stress injury. And he used the term injury rather than a disorder, which I really like. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, I'm, and of course, there's the whole neuromodulation world for spine, you know, for, for back pain, um, yeah. you know, nerve blockade. I, I'm thrown back to recall reading Mel Zack and Wall's uh, The Puzzle of Pain. What a great book that was. Yeah. Don't ever, don't ever overlook the, the value of a TENS machine. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know something? I have one and I take it with me everywhere. Well, so, there you go. 
I, I definitely have to take my tens everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> the thing works, and every time I turn it on, I think of Mel Zackenwall and that little blue and white paper. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's just convincing patients that it does work if you yeah. use it well. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and yeah. it beats it beats getting constipated and getting loopy absolutely. on uh, on narcotics if you can avoid them. Producing an endorphin. Come on. Yep. There you go. There you go. If you were granted three wishes to improve healthcare, what would they be? Oh, that is such a difficult question. First of all, obviously, I'd I'd ask for ten more wishes. Um, <laughs> on the assumption I'm not allowed ten more wishes. One of the things I really learned in COVID was how it was really we were as a as a clinical group, how effective we were in making rapid decisions which were clinically led for patient good, and. Our management team stepped back and said, what do you need? And I'm not saying I want the return of the pandemic, but what I am saying is actually it was efficient, clinically driven patient pathway development. Not saying we had a blank check, but what do you need as opposed to this is the deadline, this is the target. So that's my wish number one. I want to return to the day where they said, what do you need? So that was great. Number two, my wish is for healthcare inequality to be addressed across the nation. The abolition of the postcode lottery and within that healthcare inequality address, and I'm going to have a sub wish because I'm just going to push the boundaries ever so slightly, uh, early education on healthcare and self healthcare and preemptive healthcare for kids in school. And my final wish will be to have the return of free tea, coffee and milk in the coffee room. <laughs> By the way, going back to when I was working in any, that was wonderful. That was a lovely. Look yeah. after staff. We look after the patients. Yeah. Everything's right. safe. I remember asking some ambulance men what, what, how they decided where to take patients because there were a bunch of hospitals in, in, in Glasgow. And yeah. they said... Oh, it's very simple, laddie. It's which has the nicest tea and biscuits. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Alia Medniuk, thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Number one, you are, you're utterly brilliant. Your perspectives are wonderful. You're a fabulous communicator and you're a total delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That's really lovely. It's been really, really great to chat to you today. It's really nice to catch up. Good. Well, don't forget, December, cake. Hey, naked. chocolate. <laughs> Will do. Well, folks, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. Please watch out for our next episode where we're moving from pain, one of my least favorite things to contemplate, to the kidney, one of my favorite organs, especially when it's baked into a tasty steak and kidney pie. In fact, I'm going to be joined by the established nephrologist, Professor Agnes Fogo, to discuss renal pathology and her fascinating experiences as a key opinion leader in that field. And please subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends and colleagues to join in, of course, assuming that you like what you're hearing. But until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakian. Thanks again for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Stay curious.